All right, the final week of the, the book of Ruth in our series, Ruth and Redemption. I'm kind of sad to say bye to Ruth because I like Ruth and uh, Boaz. They're, they're pretty good people. And it's been a good, good love story. And so today you're going to get to hear a little bit of Josh and Becky love stories. And so guys, I apologize. And uh, Becky, I apologize. And uh, I might have to embarrass myself a little bit. So uh, you guys can enjoy that. And that'll make up for the fact that... Uh, I gotta, I gotta talk love a little bit today and, and give you some good stories. But uh, we, we've dug deep in this book and uh, we found some gold, I think, and a lot of practical stuff. And uh, let me just kind of refresh us on some of the, the good gold we found. We found biblical decision making in our first week and talked about how do we make a, a biblical decision unlike Elimelech? How do we honor God in our decisions? We saw God's hand in the difficulty, the difficulty in the divine and and how he's in the middle of all of that. And though he doesn't necessarily cause it, he allows it. And so we talked about that uh, towards the beginning. We talked about godly friendship. And we see that, that Ruth says, no matter what, Naomi, I am here with you. And, and so she's a godly friend. We saw honesty, if you remember, how Naomi was honest with her people, with her church. And she said, I am, am going to tell you what I'm feeling. Right now, I feel like God has done this to me. Her theology was bad. But she was honest, and it was a good example. We saw God's providence, how God, root word being provide, how he provides for us, and how his hand is in all those little details in our lives. And, and hopefully that was helpful for you and gave you some perspective. We saw generosity and the generosity of Boaz and even the generosity of Ruth. And the prayer is that as a church in these early days that we would become a generous group of people, a sacrificial group of people. And we saw biblical parenting on Father's Day. And got a bit of a perspective of that. And we saw last week the sin of sleeping on the job that God has called us to something great. He's given us a mission. And some of us, our sin isn't the sin of of lying, cheating, stealing, murdering. But our sin is the sin of doing nothing when God calls us to do something great. And so we saw that last week. And uh, the overall theme, though, in it all has been redemption. Redemption. That, That Boaz will redeem Ruth and Jesus will redeem us. And so today is Independence Day. Happy Independence Day. We'll enjoy some fireworks later tonight. Should be good. But uh, as we're thinking Independence Day, I also want to remind you as we celebrate our freedom that we have a great freedom in Christ. And uh, we have been freed from, from the eternal power of sin and death through the redemption that is found in Christ. And so um, we just we thank God for that. And so this week, we're uh, in the last week of a seven-week series on Ruth. And let me just recap for you one final time, the long recap of what's been going on. Make sure we're all up to speed. We're in this wicked, wicked period in Israel's history. And it's just, it, it, it kind of became this 100-year cycle, every 100 years of this, this cycle of wickedness and rebellion. And so God wakes his people up. He says, I love you. I care for you. And because I do, I'm going to discipline you. That's why Becky and I, when we discipline our sons, especially Isaiah now, almost four years old, he doesn't get it. We say, we love you, and that's why we discipline you. God loves them, and that's why he disciplines them, and he gives, gets their attention with uh, famine. And so in the middle of this famine, we kind of focus in on this one family. Elimelech is a father. He's married to Naomi. They have two sons, Malon and Kilion. Elimelech is put in a position, will I stay here in Bethlehem where my family is starving? Will I move them about 50 miles away to Moab where they can get some food? 
And so his decision was, I will move them. It seemed to make sense, but in the long run, it wasn't a good decision because what he did is he took his family out of the church, so to speak, out of their fellowship, out of the place where God's people were to be, and put them in a place smack in the middle of a people who worshipped a false god named Chemosh, a people who, who were ancestral, they were perverted, and he surrounded his family and his children with that. And so what happens is instead of getting fat and healthy, Elimelech dies, and then after his death, his sons go on to marry Moabite women. And then the sons die. And so now you have Naomi, the wife. And you have Ruth and this lady, Orpah, who are now Moabite widows left in the land with this uh, widow, Naomi, from Bethlehem. And it's just not good. It's not good. The situation here, when you are a widow in that day, you were impoverished because there wasn't life insurance. You were, you were in a place where you had no male to provide for you unless you had the sons. But even the sons died, and so it was a very desperate situation. While in the field, we find out that Naomi hears that back in Bethlehem, God has removed the famine. He's blessing again, so she says, I'm going back. On her way back, she turns to the daughter. She says, girls, we've got nothing to offer you back in Bethlehem. No guy is going to marry you. You're a foreigner. Go back. She presses him really, really, really hard, and eventually Orpah says, okay, goes back. She's Orpah, but she doesn't look like a Christian Um, Or she looks like a Christian, but she's not a Christian. She goes back. Ruth, however, says, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. I'm with you to the end. And so they go back. Back in Bethlehem, sure enough, God brings hope. And he brings hope through this guy we've been focusing on for the past few weeks. This guy, Boaz. Bo, we like this guy, Bo. And we find out that Bo is, is godly. He's financially secure. He's compassionate. And ladies, he's single. And he's also a, a relative of, of Ruth and Naomi's deceased husbands, which is great because in accordance with the Old Testament law, Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 25, Boaz could potentially marry Ruth and provide for this widow and her hurting mother-in-law. He could potentially, and uh, we see that there's a snag as we go on. Chapter 2 says that Ruth says, I'm going to trust in God, I'm going to go out, and I'm just going to work. And, and see if God will prove himself faithful. And she goes out, and she gets into the fields, and she does this thing called gleaning where she's taking all the leftovers after the harvest, and she's gleaning. And, and sure enough, it just so happens, it says, God's way of being sarcastic, it just so happens that she comes across the field of Boaz, who just so happens to show up, who just so happens to be Bethlehem's most eligible bachelor, who just so happens to be a, a potential redeemer for him. And, and for her, and he ends up noticing Ruth, inquires about her, gives her a better position in the field. He gives her some girlfriends to, to kind of be with her and to support her. He says, guys, stay away. So he protects her. He starts to compliment her. He then gives her gifts. And it was just amazing. God's blessings were clearly being poured out on Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, through this guy named Boaz. And then, as we know, weeks and weeks and weeks pass. And great first date, but no phone call. No phone call, and uh, there was some, probably some discouragement there. Chapter 3, however, says, Naomi, good little scheming mother-in-law, she says, all right, here's what we're going to do. I got an idea. We're going to put you in a position where you're very vulnerable, Ruth, and you're going to go before Boaz, and you're going to let him know that you want him to be the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer to serve you and, and even to marry you. And what happens, if you remember, Boaz, when she puts herself out there to him, he says, are you serious? Wow, he was stunned. So he wasn't a jerk. That's not why he was, was calling her. He just thought she was out of his league. He says, are you serious? I'm, I'm a little bit older in life, and I'm still single, 
And uh, you're younger. You could probably get younger single guys who are also wealthy. He was wealthy. He says you could get wealthy and younger guys. And so he was, he was stunned. And he says, absolutely, I'll do this. I will do this. But, do you remember, there's a snag. There's a kinsman closer than I. And we saw last week, we look at this, this kinsman in, in chapter 4. And we see this nice romantic contractual agreement. Nothing more romantic than a contract. And we get this this cool picture last week of Boaz getting down to business. I love it. He gets down to business. He's a man's man. He says, all right, man, you need to sit down right here at the gate, which is the courthouse, which is the place where they did some business. He says, you sit down right here. He calls some elders. He says, you guys sit down right here. We're going to get this thing done. Here's the deal, Mr. Should-be Redeemer. See, this guy was was closer to... to um, Ruth's late husband than Boaz was, and so he was the one who should have legally been taking care of her, but he did nothing. It was a sin of doing nothing, and so Boaz says, sit down here. Let's get this done. Why are you not taking care of her? He says, I I can't because it might hurt the inheritance of the rest of my, my family, and so he says, no, I can't do it. You go ahead and take it, and so Boaz says, gladly, gladly, and so chapter four, that's where we are today. And uh, Boaz is picking up the slack of this would-be or should-be redeemer. He's picking up the slack. Nice romantic contract, and uh, we're going to continue. So Ruth chapter 4, verse 7, the last half of the contract, and it gets good today. So hang on tight, ladies. We're going to get to the wedding. And uh, it's, it's, it's very important to see Boaz here and what he's doing. He's duking it out, not on the battlefield, but he's duking it out in the courtroom for, for Ruth. So let's, let's check it out. Verse 7, picking up where we were last week. It says, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. So let's stop there. So obviously this custom was not being practiced anymore. It says this was the custom in former times. So when this, this was written, it, it wasn't being practiced anymore. This is the custom in, in former times concerning redeeming and exchanging. Let's continue on. To confirm a transaction... The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Verse 8. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. So here's the deal. The bum didn't want, remember we called on the Bethlehem bum last week because he should have done something, but he did nothing. He was just a bum. The bum didn't want the land because Ruth was attached to the land. And so the custom was uh, that to seal the deal, he would take off his sandal, and he would give it to Boaz. And so it says he does that. He takes off his sandal, and he gives it over to, to Boaz. And the passing of the, of the sandal, what it did is it symbolized that Boaz now had the right to walk on the land as his own personal property. So here's, here's my sandal. It's like you give me cash for a house, I give you my Nike, right? And the Nike is the deed to the house. And that would absolutely kill my wife, Becky. I mean, just absolutely kill her because she loves her shoes. So are you giving away shoes? Are you serious? And then you have your mismatched shoes because you, you own land. So she'd say, forget it, no land. I'm not buying land. I love my shoes too much. But they made the exchange. They sealed. I told, I told you guys I was going to embarrass her today. They sealed the deal. So let's read on now. Verses 9 and, verses nine and 10. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead 
in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So here we see that all the elders and all the people, there was a crowd present, and they witnessed what was going on. And they saw that Boaz had redeemed, he had, he had purchased all that belongs, it says, to Elimelech, to, to Malon, and, and to Kilion, including Ruth, this, this Moabite widow, to be his, his wife. And it says that it enables the family name to continue on. And so when, when Boaz and Ruth are to be married, they, they will have a child, and that child will carry on the name of Malon. See how God's, God's, God's uh, providence here, he says, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have your name, even though you pass, your name is going to, to be carried on. And so we see there's this crowd present. They served as witnesses of what Boaz has just accomplished, and this, the deal is, is finished. The sandal has been passed or received. The contract is complete. Ruth has her hero. Boaz has his girl. The story is good. It's happy. They live happily ever after. It's a beautiful thing, and God has been, been good, and in his faithfulness and his, his sovereignty, he brings these two unlikely people who see, were originally unequally yoked, yokes them, brings them together, and creates his god honoring union of of marriage between Ruth and Boaz. And what I want you to see is though they're about to be unified individually before marriage, both Boaz and Ruth worked really, really hard for their marriage. I need you to see that before marriage, they worked really hard for their marriage. I told you I'd tell you some stories. So here's Here's a story. When I was in college, I was working this job that was a pretty good job, and I had a couple other jobs that were more scholarship jobs at my school, and I was working this, this job uh, making archery equipment, and it just wasn't doing that well for me. It wasn't paying that much, and so I had to humble myself and take a job as a pizza boy because I knew that I, I was about to buy a ring Becky. And so I, I took this job as a pizza boy, and I just want you to kind of picture this guy. I was goofy, driving my little Nissan Sentra beater car, and I'm delivering pizza, you know. I'm, I'm your standard pizza boy, and, and it was a risky job, I'm telling you, man. One of the kids, one of the pizza guys actually got jumped, and all his money stolen from him while he was, because we carry a lot of cash around. And so this one pizza guy got jumped, but I did it for my wife. I worked hard for Becky, and, and I actually had this ring that I, I wanted. And I wanted to get her, and, and it was, I'd been kind of taking notes all along the way and, and kind of figuring out what she wanted for a ring. I knew she wanted princess cut, and she wanted all these things. And so what I did is I, I drew a ring, and I got it, had it custom built. And so before having the, the ring custom built, I had drawn it literally a, a top view, a side view, a front back view. And I had this ring and this little, you know, this, this master plan of this, what this ring looked like. And I had it folded up and put in the center console of my car so that whenever I was delivering pizza and I was just overwhelmed with the humility. You got a picture. I'm going onto my own college campus delivering pizza with this big light on the top of my car. It was terribly humbling. And I'm waving at my friends trying to hide, but you can't not recognize my old car. And so whenever I'd be terribly humbled or whenever I'd have to walk into a hotel, because you see a lot of crazy things in a hotel, as you can imagine, people walking up in bathrobes and things. And so whenever I'd go into a hotel or my college campus, I would just stop and pull out this picture of the ring and say, this is what I'm doing it for. I'm working hard so I can get a ring. And then I also, my, my, the, one of the perks of being the pizza boy is that when you'd make the pizzas, somebody would call and say, yes, I want pepperoni and sausage on my pizza. You do pepperoni 
and sausage and accidentally sprinkle some anchovies or something on there. Oh, I don't want that. And so it was a bad pizza. You have to sit to the side, and then we could eat it later. You know, and so that's how I actually fed myself through college, too, was with the reject pizzas that we made. And so all of that so that I could get a ring. I worked terribly, terribly hard so that I could get a ring for my girl. And Boaz and Ruth, I want you to see, they worked really, really hard to prepare themselves for marriage, but they did so before marriage. And, and I want us to, I want you to see that. For the unmarried among us, I want you to have a great marriage. And I know that the unmarried among us, I know that you want to have a great marriage. And I know that everybody makes the vows when they get married and they say that, that we're, we're with each other as long as we both shall live. And everybody's looking forward to the day that they say that. And everybody means it as long as we both shall live. But unfortunately, statistics say that the majority of us will not be married as long as we both shall live. And that, that statistic includes Christians as well. And so we need to prepare ourselves. Ladies, you must prepare yourself to be a wife. Guys, you must prepare yourself to be a husband. And if you want to prepare yourself to be a wife, to prepare yourself to be a husband, you can't wait till premarital counseling after you get engaged. If you want to prepare yourself to be a husband, to prepare yourself to be a wife, you can't even wait till you start dating and prepare yourself for that one right there. You must start preparing yourself today. You must prepare yourself today before you're married. And I know that not everyone is going to be married. But statistically speaking, the majority, like 90% or more of us will be married. And so I just want marriage to be on our minds. I want it to be on our radar screen. I want us to be thinking future now. And some of you think, I don't even have a girlfriend yet. I don't even have a boyfriend yet. Are you serious? Yes, I'm serious. Get it on your radar screen now. Because when you do find him or her, Mr. Wright, Mrs. Wright, and say you get engaged and the average you know, engagement is about a year long, one year is not long enough to prepare. It's just not. It's not long enough. And ladies, whatever guy you find, I know you look at him and say, I'm going to change him. You won't change him. You won't change him. I know he looks at you in the eyes and he says, baby, I love you. I love you. And you make me want to be a better man. And that might be true. He, you might make him want to be a better man, but you will not make him a better man. You go look for a better man. That's what you do because he can say all he wants, but if he's not the man that he's telling you he wants to be, then you don't need him right now. And I just want to kind of take that liberty, if I can, to raise the bar for you, ladies. We'll, we'll raise the bar for you because I don't want you to, to settle. And, and, and if he's wasting his Saturdays playing Xbox today, believe it or not, he will do it when he's married. If he's lazy today, he's going to be lazy when, when you're married. And guys, I, I got to be honest, I've never heard a lady say, you know what? I love a man who can play some mean guitar hero. She, oh, so fine. Girls don't say that. They don't, they don't want a man who can play some serious guitar hero. So you've got to get off the sofa, and you've got to grow up. And a lot of us have this idea that when I get married, it'll make me grow up. But I see a lot of guy, married guys who are acting like they're 15 years old. Boaz was prepared for marriage. He saved up money financially so that he could have some fun, so that he could redeem this land. He got himself to a place spiritually where he was doing well with the Lord. He got himself to a place spiritually where he had leadership spiritually over people. He was prepared. And so we, you, must prepare yourself for marriage. It means get a faith, get a job, create some stability, 
create some funds. Listen, here's an example. Boaz, he was strong in the Lord before marriage. And so, guys, we've got to stop doing boyish things. We've got to grow up, open our Bible, get into some good books. If you need a good book, I'll hook you up with some some good books. Go read some good books. Get out in the woods and pray. Develop a vibrant relationship with God. Serve in the church. But do that. Grow in your relationship with the Lord before you start a relationship with someone before you get married. And Boaz was clearly strong in the Lord. Another thing we said Boaz did is he created some financial stability before, before marriage. And if you can do that, absolutely do it. And I know that we can't always wait till we're financially stable to get married. In fact, for some people, getting married and, and then moving in together after marriage, by the way, makes a lot of financial sense. It does, but, but the truth of the matter is, is that a lot of young married couples are broke as, as a joke because the guy in his bachelor days spent all of his bachelor funds on, on boyish things, big boy toys like rims for the car or TVs or working on his comic book collection, whatever, I don't know. Listen, I promise you, the girl is going to be way more impressed with your savings account than with your stereo system. I promise you, I promise you. Now... Becky and I, we didn't have a, a savings account at all. We got married. But what I did do is I worked my tail off the summer before uh, we were married. I worked my tail off in an internship so that I could secure a job. And guys, at least get busy. Start working hard. Do whatever you can do. And when I was finally offered that job at the end of the summer, I turned and offered Becky that ring that I had been, been saving up on down at the Boston Harbor. It was a beautiful thing. We were down at the harbor at the, at the pier and I had this long, I won't even bore you with the plan, a lot of details. If you ever, girls, if you ever want to hear the, the plan, I'll tell you. This is this long, elaborate plan. And finally, it worked our way at the end of the night down to the, the pier at the, the Boston Harbor. And we were praying over the city together. And as we're praying, uh, when she said amen, she opens her eyes. And I was down on one knee, popping the, the ring and the question, what's up? You like that? And so uh, it, was, it was a good one. It was a good one. And so, listen, guys, we've got to work hard. Here's another one. Boaz was, Boaz was, I'm an idiot, huh? I'm sorry, I'm telling you all these goofy stories. Boaz was leading, he was leading others before he was leading his, his wife and kids. And this is, this is really, really important. Guys, we've, we've got to prepare ourselves to lead before we get into the position where we have to lead our, our wives and kids. That means that if there's a younger guy that you can invest in, that you can disciple, practice your leadership on, on that, that younger guy, for both of you, guys and, and ladies. The, the, the church is a perfect place to, to begin that. It's a perfect place for you to, to begin working on your leadership, working on, on your service. I love it. I absolutely love it when, when young ladies serve in the church. I think it's just a, a perfect thing because they're, they're honing their, their nurturing skills before becoming a mother. That's why I love having church activities where, where kids are running around, and right now it's just my kids and a few others, but while they're running around, I think that's just a beautiful thing because ladies can practice their, their loving, parenting, nurturing now, and, and, and I just love seeing that when, when ladies 
practice nurturing on my children while they're reading books to my children or, or singing songs to the children or, or getting plugged in here with the, with the River Kids program. It's just a beautiful thing. I love it when, when guys start to teach Bible studies to younger guys and they get to maybe do some one-on-one discipleship and, and they get to make mistakes on other people's family before they jack up their own family, right? And it's, it's just a perfect, perfect thing. Married couples, this doesn't exclude you either. It includes the married couples in this room. Listen, we need to work hard to get in on this action and to kind of create those opportunities as well. That means that I think naturally for us married couples, we want to have other married couples over at the house. We want to have people that have kids in our same life stage with us so that they can, we can hook our kids up together and they can, they can make some friends. But married couples, don't just simply ask married couples over to the house for dinner. Be intentional about inviting a pack of singles over maybe pull a naomi you know hook some people up we'll do whatever you, you need to do but it's this is important so the people when they're over at your house they can see how you interact with your spouse how you interact with your children and you can serve as an example for them and I, you know, we're right here by colleges all over the place in boston and, and that's why boston is so strategic in impacting this this country because it is the athens of america it's the learning center of america with more colleges than any other city it's just incredible this place that we're in right now and and the best college ministries are not the college ministry, ministries where college students go hang out in a corner together with just college students it's not the best college ministry the best college ministries are the ones where college students get to hang out with families because in college, they're secluded for four years, six years, seven, eight years, uh, depending on what, the, what degree they're going for. And they, they just get secluded with people their own age. But if we can, during those years, get them connected with families and they can practice that and they can see that modeled for them, it's just a, it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And, 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 and we want to be that kind of church where our college ministry enables people to, to connect with families and, and, and children. The ones where college students are also encouraged to get up and go do something. Let's not just simply go to you and, and cater to you, but let's get you and plug you in somewhere where you're doing something and you're serving because that's what marriage is. It's constant, humble serving of another person. That's, that's huge. That is marriage. And so that's the kind of college ministry that I believe is going to make a lasting impact. And so guys, work hard to be like Boaz. Work on a marriage even before you're in a marriage. Ladies, do the same because Ruth did the same. And so be like these two and start today working on your marriage by working on your relationship with God. Work on your marriage by working on your finances. Work on your marriage by working on your character. Work on your marriage by working on your leadership. Work on your marriage by working on parenting skills today. Work on your marriage by by working on your serving. Before you're engaged, before you're married, before you're expecting, start working on that today. And I just hope that, that this will just burn in your mind a vision for what marriage could be. And I, I just pray that that would happen. Marriage and family would be burnt into your mind today. And marriage, again, help them. Help them. Stop drawing the line at married people and help these younger people and model it for them. I have a few married people that I refer to mentally from the days when I was younger before I was married. And I, I think whenever, whenever I do something stupid towards my wife, I say, how would he handle this? Whenever I do something stupid with my kids or they are stressing me out to no end, how would... How would he handle this? And I think about that. I reflect to that. And if we can be that now, married people, for other people, be very, very, very special, very important. And so we see that Boaz and Ruth were prepared for marriage. Now, moving on, not only were they prepared for marriage, but they were blessed in time with, with children. And I want us to see that children are a blessing from God. Let's read on. Look at verses 
11 and 12 now. And then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily, worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Ephrathah is another name for Bethlehem, by the way. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this, this young woman. So everybody has recognized now just this wonderful thing that Boaz has done by taking Ruth and, and saying, I will make her my wife and I will redeem the land and I will redeem her. And so what they do is they pray for God's blessing. Specifically, they pray for children, for, for this couple. And they pray for both Boaz and for Ruth. They, the prayer was twofold as we read here. They pray that, that Ruth would be like Rachel and Leah. And they pray that, that Boaz's name would be known or renowned and that he would be like the house of Perez. So let me just kind of break this down, that Ruth would be like Rachel and Leah. Now, Rachel and Leah were ancestors of both Boaz and, and Naomi, and they were both barren ladies until Genesis twenty nine thirty one and thirty twenty two says, until the Lord opened their womb. They were barren until the Lord opened their womb. And I want you to know that that's what God does. God opens the womb for people. And, and so what are they praying for Ruth here? They're, they're praying publicly here that Ruth would be a mom, that Ruth would be a mom. And, and ladies, I, I want you to see that, that being a mom is one of the greatest privileges on, on the planet. Just ask my mom. She was blessed with me. Greatest privileges being a mom is one of the greatest privileges on, on the planet. But our culture has really twisted this terribly. We could, we could, really, just, we could really exposit our culture, exegete our culture right now and and really talk about how our culture has done that. But let me just give you a, a few examples. Think about how we glamorize youth. I mean, for example, you remember back in the olden days, you've seen all the movies. The guys put on the, the white hair wigs because they want to look older and wiser. That was an honorable thing, is, is older in age and, and the wisdom that comes with years. But today we glamorize youth, and I, I think we do so to the detriment of, of marriage and family. And what happens is we have these fathers who are leaving their wives for younger ladies, and it's, I don't care about you, I don't care about my kids, this lady's younger, she's more attractive by the world's standards, it's a, it's a terrible thing. And now what happens is, is mothers have this unnecessary pressure on them to get the body that they had when they were 18 years old, when almost, it's almost physically impossible after having kids to have the body that you had when you were 18 years old. And so the result is we have grown women who are Botoxing their face like it's a science project or something. We have, we have 85 year old women with jet black hair and highlights trying to look like they're 12. I mean, it's just it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ri- ridiculous. People trying to look youthful and try to look like they were pre pregnancy. It's just impossible. We put these unfair standards on, on ladies. And, and even for, for younger people, Children, having, having children is seen as a, as a burden, as, as an inconvenience, so much to the point that, that we can just have a procedure and get rid of them if necessary, as if we, we justify taking a life to make our life easier. It's, it's just so selfish. And so, ladies, please don't fall for this. We want to be different here. Don't, don't fall for it. Being a mom is not a terrible thing. It's a wonderful thing. Yes, it does crazy things to you. And your, your emotions, everything just goes crazy for a period. But let me tell you, it is, it is a blessing. And, and husbands, if your wife 
desires to be a mom, God has probably put that desire in her heart for a, a reason. And, and don't force her to keep pushing it off and pushing it off and pushing it off so that we can fulfill some financial dreams. And don't get me wrong, all my wife has to do is see a baby. And she, wants, she looks at me and says, can we be a mom? We have another baby. Can I, can I have another one? All, all my wife has to do is watch a show on TLC and she'll say, can we have another baby? And, and, and all, all I need to do is give like two minutes and it will wear off or until Luca flushes her cell phone down the toilet or something, it, it'll fade off. But listen, if your wife has this, this lasting desire to be a, a, a mother and to have a child and there's really no explainable reason to wait, you should probably prayerfully consider moving forward because that's what God has put in her heart because that's what she was made for and it's a blessing to, to be a mom and so verse 11 they pray for Ruth to be blessed with children that God would open her womb it's a wonderful thing and then they pray in verses 11 and 12 that Boaz's name would be known and that he would be like the house of of Perez now just like Rachel and Leah Perez was another ancestor as well of, of, of Boaz and Naomi and and he too was involved in one of these redemptive type relationships like Boaz. And, and Perez's descendants go on to fill Bethlehem, which is all kinds of people because of having children. And that was their prayer for Boaz, that he and Ruth would, would have children that would, would again fill Bethlehem because children are a gift. And they say, I pray that God will bless you with children. They pray also that Boaz's name would be renowned in, in Bethlehem, that he would be known in, in Bethlehem, and it just so happens that Boaz's name is renowned, not just in Bethlehem, but in this room today, we're talking uh, about Boaz, and we study Boaz, and so this prayer at the gate was answered, that Boaz, his name becomes renowned, and he becomes famous, while the Bethlehem bum, if you remember, who did nothing, who sat back, did nothing, his name fades into oblivion into history, anonymous, as the guy who did nothing. And Boaz, his name becomes renowned. And his name becomes renowned because of the faith he exercises, the generosity he exercises, the example he exercises. But as they're praying, his name becomes renowned because of his parenting, because of his grandchildren and his great children. Primarily, he becomes known as, as the grandfather and a great-grandfather of who? We'll read on of, of David. So let's read on. Let's read verses 13 all the way through the end of the chapter. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then, the name, then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap, and he became and became a nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood, or the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of who? Father of David. And now these are the genera- generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. And Nashon fathered Salmon. And Salmon fathered Boaz. And Boaz fathered Obed. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And so Boaz and Ruth here go on to get married. It's a wonderful thing. And it's just a symbol of God's redemptive and restorative 
hand where he just uses these, these two as an example for us and brings them together and brings life into this whole situation, new life out of this, this rough situation from, from chapter 1 and chapter 2. And they have a son, and it says that the son's name is Obed. Obed, and Obed fathers Jesse, and Jesse fathers David. Not just David, King David. King David, the man after God's own heart. King David, whose scripture goes on to trace David's lineage all the way down to Jesus. To Jesus. And so Ruth is a, is a direct ancestor of, of, of Christ himself. And the only other place that we hear the name of Ruth recorded in scripture is in Matthew chapter 1, the very first chapter of the very first gospel book. And it gives us the lineage of Jesus. And as it's giving us the lineage of Jesus, it gives us the name of Ruth. Now why this is so special is because the Jewish people were, were patriarchal. They were concerned with the male lineage. And as they're going through the male lineage, it says this guy was the father of this guy, was the father of this guy, was the father of this guy. And as it's going through all of that, suddenly it starts to mention a woman. It says this guy is the father of this guy, this guy is the father of this guy. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Isn't that cool? It's so cool that Ruth's name gets into this list tracing the lineage of Christ. And, and not only Boaz's name, answered prayer, becomes renowned, but also Ruth's name becomes renowned because of their examples of godliness and because their names are connected directly to, to Jesus. And I just want you to see their renown, and I want you to see their, their legacy and, and you know how their renown and their legacy comes. One, it comes by their testimony when they walk this earth, but their renown and their legacy also comes through their children and their grandchildren, and their great-grandchildren, down to David, all the way down to Jesus. And so children are a blessing of God. Psalm 127, 3 through 5. I have a little picture in my Bible here. It's, it's a picture of my boys, and I look at them, I pray for them, and then on the back, it, it has this, this verse written down, and here's what it says. 127, 3 through 5. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Some translations say a blessing from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And then it goes on, verse 4. Here's our renown. Here's our legacy. It says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Verse 5. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. What's a quiver? Quiver is, is this long, narrow uh, case that you would put your arrows in. It says, blessed is the man whose quiver is full of kids. We like having kids. That's why you look at some Christians, they have a lot of kids because kids are, are a blessing of the Lord. They're not a burden. They're, they're, they're a good, wonderful thing. And blesses the man whose quiver is, is full of them. And so they're like arrows. Our kids become like arrows in our quiver where we prepare them at home. And these guys would make their own. They didn't go to Walmart. They didn't go to Target to buy these little toy arrows. They, they at home skillfully work on their arrows, and we work on our, our children, we, we disciple our children, prepare them at home so that then we can take them and we can shoot them out skillfully into the culture so that they can go and they can impact the culture and change the world. And so our legacy, our renown is, yes, our testimony like Ruth and Boaz, but also our, our children, our grandchildren, great-grandchildren. And it might just seem, just seem completely ridiculous right now for us to think marriage let alone children, let alone grandchildren, let alone great-grandchildren. But that's our legacy. That's, that's our renown. If we want to influence the culture down the road, we have to begin with, with our children. This child, Obed, 
was, was a blessing. He was a blessing for Ruth and Boaz as they prayed. It also goes on, it says he was a blessing for Naomi, which is really uh, a really cool picture. Naomi becomes uh, a grandmother. And verse 15 says that, that God, through Boaz, for her was a, a, a nourisher of, of, of life, a restorer of life and a nourisher in her old age. And there's no, no better way to nourish people as they get older in life and to give them life and vibrancy than to give them grandkids, right? It's just a, it's a wonderful thing to give them grandkids. Maybe you've seen this before. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your friend's parents. Or, or, or maybe you're going to have the privilege of seeing this someday. When maybe your parents who typically wouldn't do this now, grandkids are in their life and they're on their knees, on the ground, they're wrestling, they're, they're doing all kinds of goofy things with the kids and they light up and they pull out their wallet with all the pictures that come falling down. It gives them them life. I mean, can you imagine, for me, that, that's, that's joy that I have to look forward to in my 60s, 70s, 80s. That's incredible. That's, that's, that's joy. That's life. That's, that's uh, restoring my life and nourishing me in my, my old age. We have that to look forward to, and we can be a part of that. And so it's a gift, and we see this picture in verse 15 of, of Naomi, and it says that she's got baby Obed in her lap. She goes from all this death surrounding her, her husband, her, her two sons, and then God does this wonderful thing. He brings redemption. He provides for her. He gives her a grandkid. And so we have the beginning of the chapter, or the book, and then the end of the book, these two different opposing pictures, one of death and hopelessness, and one of life and redemption and new birth. It's just a wonderful, wonderful picture of us and for us of, of the gospel. The hope is back, and there is joy there. And, and the joy is not in the things of the Lord, the, joy, uh, the world. The joy is in the things of, of, of the Lord, true, lasting joy. And uh, it's, just, it's just a wonderful picture for us. And I, I just pray that we would take this, this picture, that true joy is found in living the life that God intends for you, the life that God has designed us for. That's why we're all whacked up in our culture. That's why life is crazy right now. It's because we're out living lives that, that we, we're chasing these things that are joyful. But it's not the, 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 the things we were made for. But if we would engage in the things we were made for, worship, relationship with God, getting married, having kids, growing old, having grandkids, if we would pursue those things, that's where, that's where joy is, is found. And so I just pray that, that we would have this image burn into our minds of, of marriage and, and a family from, from this, this last chapter of Ruth. This, this image of getting to grow up and getting to pursue marriage and, and having a family and, and training our family to live as, as our legacy. I, just, I pray that it's there. And there's no greater joy than vibrant relationships. Relationship first with the Lord, then a relationship with the spouse, and then a relationship with the children, relationship with your church. I just pray that you would catch this vision of joy and living life the way God has intended. And so this is a wonderful story, and I pray that it's been really powerful you, the story of, of beginning with death and ending with, with new life, chapter 1 all the way to chapter 4. And as we've seen throughout this story, this, this beautiful picture of redemption, this, this wonderful picture of redemption that through one man, Boaz, God redeems Ruth, he redeems Naomi, and he leaves this wonderful legacy. Though Boaz had no legal obligation whatsoever to redeem these, these ladies, he was glad to do it. He was actually very stunned at the privilege to do it. He was excited to do it. Likewise, Boaz serves for us as an example of Christ. 
we know this. Boaz is, is our Christ-like example where Jesus has come to earth as a man and, and he offers us redemption. He has no legal obligation to us whatsoever. Justice is being served when we get death for our sin. When we get eternal separation from God for our sin. That is justice. But Jesus says, I love you so much. I care for you, though I have no legal obligation. I would gladly lay down my life as the only one who could die for you because I'm the only one who is sinless. I will lay down my life for you as the redemptive sacrifice for your sin. That is the gospel. That is, is the gospel. Jesus, who didn't deserve death, died as our payment and gives us hope and gives us life. And as it says of Naomi, it's true for us that, that Jesus becomes our restorer of life because of the sacrifice, because of his payment, his redemption. And we're just going to move into a time in a couple minutes here of, of communion. And I want us just to focus on that. I just want us to think about that and meditate on this, this concept of what Jesus did, this redemption that Jesus gives us. And so let's pray.